You just cannot blaspheme God and get away with it. Every first century Jew knew that. Every 21st century Jew knows that. You can't just take the name of God, drag it through the dirt, and it's no big deal. In fact, to the Jewish mindset, the name of God is so holy that for anyone to say anything against it, for anyone to in any way diminish God's goodness or his glory through their words or their activities, is blasphemy. And there is no sin worse than blasphemy to the Jewish mind. So you can't just blaspheme God and get away with it. Everybody knows that. Jesus comes along, claims to be God. Even though he's a human being, he claims not just that he came from God. He doesn't just claim that he knows God. He doesn't just claim to be sent from God. He says, I am. He calls himself by the name of God, the name that is not to be repeated, the name that cannot be spelled out because it's so holy. And in their eyes, every time he calls himself God, he's blaspheming. And so this blasphemy is building up because again and again and again, Jesus makes no bones about it. Wherever he goes, he uses this title, I am, to describe himself. And he says that he is God. And so they crucified him. If you asked any of those priests, any of the Pharisees, any of the Jews that gathered that day shouting, crucify, 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 what is your justification for crucifying this man who has done so much good? And the answer would be, it doesn't matter how much good he's done, he claims to be God and that's it. He must be done away with. He claimed to be God, so they crucified him. Stephen, not long later, claimed that Jesus was God and they stoned him for it. There's just a zero tolerance for this sort of thing. And as they did that, there was a Pharisee named Saul who was there right in the middle of it all. And now he had his taste for blood. Now he got excited about the idea that this blasphemy called the way, this group of people who kept claiming that Jesus is God had to be done away with. No more of it could be allowed. It was absolutely unacceptable. I have to do something about this. And he was hell bent on finding Jesus followers wherever they hid, dragging them out of hiding and putting them to death. They had to be exterminated like a bunch of bugs or rats. They had to be done away with because blasphemy was at the center of their whole faith system. And so with papers in hand, Saul, this great Pharisee, sets out to a place called Damascus where the, the, the movement of the followers of Jesus is beginning to get some traction and people are beginning to, to listen when people talk about this new way of thinking and this new way of life and this new king who calls himself God. And the, and the church is beginning to grow in Damascus. And so Saul sets out with papers in hand with the right to drag them away, to try them, to put them in jail, and if necessary, to just stone them on the spot. And as he's on his way to do that, everything changes in his life. Now, if you agreed with Saul, he was a patriot. The Jews looked up to this man. They said, not only is he a brilliant um, theologian, not only is he a great 
spiritual leader, not only is he among the best known of the Pharisees in Jerusalem, but he is zealous and he will not stand for this blasphemy. And to them, he was a patriot. He was a righteous defender of the dignity of God. To those who opposed him, he was a bloodthirsty terrorist, someone to be terrified of, someone to be avoided at all costs, someone who would stop at nothing to destroy people because he hated them. Either way, he was a man on a mission. Whatever title you give him, however you want to look at him, he was absolutely a man on a mission. But have you ever noticed that when you have a great plan for your life, sometimes God has other plans? Is it just me or have you ever noticed that? That, that you could get really excited about, I'm going to go this direction with my life and you get your plan all made and you start off and God says, oh, no, no, you don't even have the first inkling of what your life is supposed to be about. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to redirect you. And, you know, sometimes it's nice. He just sort of gives you a nice little curve in the road and you just gradually make some changes in your life. And then there are other times when you're, you're just walking down the road and all of a sudden, wham, he hits you in the head with a bat and you just fall over and you go, oh, and he says, I am changing your direction right now. That's what happened to Saul that day. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago, so I'm not going to rehash it and read it to you again. But, but on the road to Damascus, this bloodthirsty terrorist gets confronted by Jesus himself, the risen Christ, the resurrected Lord. And there's this flash of light. And from the light, there is a voice that comes out as Saul falls on his face, blinded and unable to see. And this voice comes from the light. And it says, Saul, Saul. (laughs) Why are we convinced God has a deep voice? Maybe it talks like Mike Tyson, I think. I don't know. Anyway... It just seems like it should be deep. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, right? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. And I'm going to show you the plan that I have for your life. And he gives them directions. He says, I want you to get up from where you are. I want you to go to this place in Damascus, and I want you to wait for instructions. And they literally lead him by the hand because he's blind. He's absolutely overwhelmed by this confrontation with Jesus. And before we get too far into today's message and thinking about what I want to really want to share with you today, I just want to ask you to think about this. Shouldn't we all be overwhelmed by a confrontation with Jesus? Shouldn't we all be blown away by our interaction with the living God? I mean, let's be clear. The reason the Jews thought it was such terrible blasphemy to call yourself God is because God is great. God is awesome. And when God cares enough about you to get involved in your life, whether he's going to teach you something or whether he's going to help you with something or answer a prayer or whether he's going to hit you with a bat and wake you up and make you change direction, isn't it an awesome thing to be in relationship with a living God who cares enough about you that he's going to do something in your life? That's where you say amen, right? Flash of light, a voice. He finds himself waiting to hear, and finally the word of the Lord comes to him and says, I have this great plan for you. I'm going to use you to spread my good news throughout the earth. And 20 to 25 years later, he sits in a Roman prison because he's been following that plan. And he puts pen to paper. 
And he writes a letter to the church. And he's rejoicing in his letter, rejoicing over the amazing impact that God's grace has had in his life. And so after a customary greeting, hi, this is Paul, I'm writing to you people, I want to share these things with you. After that, he writes the longest sentence in the Bible. Did you know that? It's the longest sentence in the Bible. Uh, It's not long in English, but in Greek, it's the longest sentence in the Bible that comes next. I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 1. Because I'm convinced that what is the longest sentence in the Bible just might be the most important. In Ephesians chapter 1, if you, if you open your Bible and just look at the page. Now, if you're looking at it on your phone, you're not going to get an appreciation for this. But, but if you have a paper Bible, look at it on the page. Here's where verse 3 begins. And here's where verse 14 ends. That's one sentence. Verse 3 to verse 14 of Ephesians 1 is the longest sentence in the Bible. And it's one sentence with one topic. Now, Rachel, you're a high school English teacher. What do you think of a run-on sentence that lasts that long? Not going to get a good grade, right? Not cool, right? Uh, But there's one point to this sentence. This is a sentence with one topic. This is a sentence that is trying to get one thing across, and that thing is redemption. He's trying to tell us that the most important thing in the life of a human being is the fact that they need to be redeemed, and that Jesus comes to redeem, and that redemption is available only through him. Redemption. What does it mean? It means to buy something back. It means to pay the ransom for something and retrieve it. To bring back something that has been taken away, something that, that belongs to you but is not in your possession. To buy it back, to pay the price, to pay the ransom, and to liberate it by way of ransom. Paul understood this concept of redemption. He understood it on a personal level. He's a terrorist who's now become an apostle. He deserved extreme punishment. Now just put yourself in his sandals for a second. You're on the road to Damascus, right? The light comes, the voice comes, and he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And the next thought in your mind is, "Uh uh-oh. It's the same in Greek, Hebrew, or English. "Uh Uh-oh. This is not good. This is not good. Here I was thinking that I had this all figured out and I thought I was serving God by doing everything I could to wipe out every mention of the name of this person and now I find out that I was wrong, he was right, he's actually God. I am in serious trouble. I'm pretty sure that the next thing Saul expected once he heard, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, was to wake up in hell. That's what he deserved. That's what he had coming to him. But it's not what he received. He received redemption by grace. And that's why when he sits down to write this letter to the Ephesians after he gives his greeting and he puts his pen on the paper under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he begins to write, he just can't stop. 
All he wants to do is explore this whole picture of redemption and what it means to be bought back, to be given grace when what you deserve is punishment. This is Paul's favorite subject. You find it all throughout his writings, and he just can't shut up about it. So let's look at this one sentence, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will. According to his kind intention, which he purposed uh, in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Is all that a little bit hard to follow? <laughs> There's a lot there, right, about the administration of the ends of times and all things being brought together. And he, he's just kind of going on and on and on. It's just like he can't stop. He's just like vomiting out this picture of God's grace. What do you do? What do you do when you come to a section in your Bible reading and you get into something like this and you just go, man, he's going on and on. I'm not really sure exactly what he's talking about. This is kind of confusing. This is kind of maybe over my head. I'm not really prepared for this. What do you do when you come to a section like that? You're home, you're just reading your Bible, and you come to this. Do you, do you stop and dig in, or do you just keep turning pages until you find another one of those cool stories? Something about uh, the parting of a sea or a giant that gets slain or something like that. Because the stories, man, the stories motivate me. They impassion me. They get me all excited. But here's the deal. This is the good stuff. Because if this is not true, and if we don't understand what, what Paul has just laid out for us in this one giant run-on sentence, if we don't understand this, then the stories have absolutely no meaning. Might as well read Dr. Seuss. Those stories are interesting too. I know, that's what I read a lot of. Keeps me motivated. This is the good stuff. The message of redemption. And if you're a follower of Jesus today, that is to say, if you have a personal relationship with him now, I'm not just talking about, you know, you grew up in a Christian family, you live in a Christian country, or, or you've been coming to church and, and you've been hearing these things. That's not what I mean. I mean, if you're actually in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, if you have confessed your sin and asked him to come into your life and be your Lord and Savior, and you've been endeavoring to follow him, if you are a follower of Jesus today, 
then you too have been redeemed. Then you too have every bit as much to be excited about as Paul has to be excited about. Now you may say, oh, pastor, look, I know I've done some things wrong. I cheated on my taxes once, you know. Um, I, I've, I littered one time. But, you know, I'm not a bloodthirsty terrorist. I don't have as much to be thankful for as, as this guy, Saul, who becomes Paul. I mean, I mean, I only need about this much of God's grace, but he needed like this much of God's grace. Let me just respectfully disagree. Because the scripture says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, let me ask you a question. If you needed to jump across the Grand Canyon, and, and let's just say we lined up some people, and, and let's say this is the edge of the Grand Canyon, and I'm going to try to jump to the other end. And I jump, I get maybe three feet. And then you hear a sound that diminishes, followed by a little puff of dust at the bottom, right? But let's just say we got Robbie. He's got legs this long, right? <laughs> we get Robbie and we give him a running start. And he goes and he leaps and he gets out there seven feet. I mean, he's twice as good as me. And he's also a blot of dust at the bottom. And if, and if we get the world record holder in the long jump, and we let him get a running start, and he goes and he flies 29 feet. He too is a dot at the bottom. And we could sit around and talk all day about how I'm the worst jumper, and Robbie is the second best jumper, and the other guy is the best jumper. And in the end, guess what? We're all dead. And so for us to sit and go, well, this grace is, you know, important for people that are just awful, terrible people, but somebody like me, I'm not so bad. No, you are. All of our sin separates us from God, and the wages of sin is death. And so when we think about grace, whether it's for a bloodthirsty terrorist like Saul, or whether it's through a guy who just maybe made a few too many mistakes in his life. We all end up at the bottom. We all need to be redeemed. Now, we started our reading today because I wanted to give you this whole giant sentence in verse 3, but we actually covered the first several verses of this last week. So we're going to pick it up today in verse 7. Let me read to you verse 7. In him, who's him? Who? Jesus. In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. What's that talking about? The cross, right? Jesus went to the cross, paid the price for our sin. Our redemption is only available through that. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. What is redemption? What is the result of redemption? It's the forgiveness of our trespasses according to how far you can jump. Is that what it says? (laughs) It says according to his riches, which he lavished on us, according to the riches of his grace. Redemption, redeemed, forgiven. How does that happen? It happens through his blood. Notice, not a word about how far you can jump. 
Not a word about your good works, your sharp intellect, or, or your, all the good works that you've done. But by his blood, what can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? Yeah, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And guys, the world will tell you that there are all these different ways, all these different paths that maybe if you work hard enough, maybe if you do enough good things, maybe if you're devoted to some religious system, whatever that is, maybe that will be enough. But the scripture tells us nothing can wash away my sin but the blood of Jesus. Why was the blood necessary? Why the cross? Why does a loving God, a good God, why does he require such a terrible payment? The Bible says our God is loving, and it also says he is just. There's something God cannot do. He cannot be not God. God, by his nature, is God. And so the thing that he cannot do is be not God. If his nature were to be changed in any little way, he would be something less than God. If there was some way that he could grow and become more, he would be something less than God. If there was any chance that he could diminish, he would be something less than God. He cannot be not God. It's not in his nature. And his nature says, I love. And his nature says, I am just. I demand justice. And he can't lay aside justice in order to express his love. His very nature as God requires that a price be paid for my rebellion and yours. So how did he do it? We saw this at the beginning of this long sentence. He chose us for adoption by his grace. Now, what is grace? There's a difference between mercy and grace. I don't know if we're all aware of this. There's a big difference between mercy and grace. God gives us both. But mercy is when you are guilty and you deserve punishment, and as an act of mercy, you are not punished in spite of the punishment you deserve. Mercy is a wonderful thing, isn't it? But then there's something called grace. Grace is mercy plus blessings. So God looks upon somebody who, who deserves to be crushed, who when they come face to face with the living God in some sort of confrontation, their first thought is the same as Saul's first thought. Uh-oh, I'm in serious trouble. I need mercy. And God says, I know what you want is mercy, and I'm going to give you mercy. But beyond mercy, I'm going to give you grace. I'm not just going to save you from the punishment that you deserve. I am going to give you the blessings you could never deserve. I'm going to adopt you as my child. It goes beyond mercy. Grace is mercy plus blessing. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Most of us can agree that grace is amazing. I think we sang about it quite a bit this morning. But there's something we need to understand about God's grace. 
it isn't cheap. God's grace is not cheap. It's free, but it's not cheap. Justice requires that a payment be made, a payment so high that none of us could possibly ever afford it in a billion lifetimes. And so grace says, God will pay it on our behalf. That's why the cross, that's why the blood, the riches of God's grace, that's what he's talking about. And every follower of Christ has been chosen to have those riches lavished on us, to be poured out upon us because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Let me see if I can illustrate this another way. Have you seen the movie Saving Private Ryan? It, okay, well, I'm going to give you a spoiler alert, but if you haven't seen this movie yet, you probably don't care about movies, so I'm not too worried about this, okay? So in this movie, Saving Private Ryan, the story is basically this. It's World War II. The Ryan family has sent all four of their young college-age sons off to war in Europe. And the War Department gets a, a memo that on the same day, three of those four boys were killed in action. And there's a letter that has to go home to a mother, not to say that one of your sons has passed, not to say that two of your sons has passed, but three of your sons have given their lives in this battle for liberty. And when they realize there is a fourth brother who is out there, they say, we cannot let this mother lose her fourth son. And so their job now is to go find him in Germany somewhere, get him off the front lines and get him safely home before this mother has lost all of her children. And his name is Private Ryan. And so this is right after the invasion of Normandy. These guys have stormed the beaches of Normandy, managed to survive where thousands were killed. They have gotten through all of this and their little battalion now is given this assignment. You have to go and find this guy. We don't know where he is. He's somewhere in Germany. You're gonna track him down. You're gonna find him and you're gonna bring him back safely because he gets a free get out of jail card. He's going home. The guys who were sent to get him resent it because they have to put their lives in harm's way to make it so this guy won't have to put his life in harm's way and he doesn't mean anything to them and they couldn't care less about this guy. What they know is that in their work to go and save him, more of their guys are getting killed. And it finally ends up that they find him and where they find him, there is this, um, this final battle and, and Tom Hanks who plays Captain Miller is the guy who has been leading this battalion, and they're all getting killed in this final battle, all to save Private Ryan, who is Matt Damon. And here in this scene, Tom Hanks is bleeding out, and he's about to die, and he says to Private Ryan, he gets him really close, and with gurgled voice, he says, earn this. And we find out later, as the movie goes on, and the movie ends with this old man going back to the, to the beach of Normandy and to the graveyards that are there, and finding the grave of Captain Miller, he stands there with this look on his face, and he is the aged version of Private Ryan, saved by these men's sacrifice. And his wife comes up to him as tears roll down his face, and he says, tell me I'm a good man. Tell me I've lived a good life. 
What's he saying? Tell me I earned this. He's lived his whole life with the knowledge that he received something so great he couldn't possibly earn it. And he's been living the rest of his life trying to earn what he's already been given. You can never earn the grace of God, but you must live differently once you have received it. This whole study in Ephesians is about believing what is true and living what you believe. This is intensely practical stuff. This is life-changing stuff. If any man is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. His grace changes everything. Last week, we looked at 2 Peter chapter 1. I want you to turn there with me today. Again, we're going to take another glance at it. It's toward the back of your New Testament. 2 Peter, go to chapter 1. And 2 Peter chapter 1, I'm just going to begin reading here in verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God uh, and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. You remember that last week? Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. So that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. He's done all of this for you, it says. This is all by grace. And so what? So what? What difference does it make? Do I just check a box on a paper at the church to go, I too want to be in this, in this club. I want to be a believer. I want to go to heaven too. I don't want to go to hell. And is that what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ? No, he says there's a part for us to play. As this grace is poured out in our lives, what happens next? He says, um, uh, let me find it again. He says, verse... Uh, Five, now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. That's what you do. In your moral excellence, knowledge. In your knowledge, self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. And he goes on and he basically says, build your life differently because of this grace. And folks, we have committed a grave error in the church over the last 50 years or so. And we have been so big on preaching the grace of God that we have maybe forgotten to mention that this grace is life-changing. And as a result, there is this sort of free 
cheap grace idea that is out there that says, I'll just take that grace and I'll just keep living exactly the way I've been living. And God says, no, no, no. If my grace has been lavished upon you, you can't keep living the way you've been living. Even if you tried, you couldn't because you are a new creation in Christ. We have been born again, not repaired, not reformed, born again. And Peter understood the practical ramifications of this, and that's why he said, you better start building your life on these foundations. We don't do these things in order to earn his grace. You can never earn his grace. But we are transformed because of his grace. His grace changes everything. Romans 8, we also visited that section last week. I want to give you some more nuance to that. Go to Romans 8 again, verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. He causes all things to work together for good. That's great news. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, we also predestined. And we talked about this last week. What does it mean to be predestined? He also predestined to what? To become conformed to the image of his son. It doesn't say, and those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to get a free ticket to heaven. That's not what it says. It says to be conformed to the image of his son. That when you have been chosen, when you have been adopted, when you have entered into the life of faith, you start to look a little more like Jesus every day. Conformed, conformed, conformed into his image. It's an amazing thing. His grace is not just about life in heaven. It is about the abundant life right here, right now. As chosen children of the king, we have a new nature. We have new identity. We have a new way of living, conformed to the image of Christ. And this amazing story of grace, this unexpected path to righteousness, we could have never gotten there on our own. It's all by his grace. Go back to Ephesians 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will. It was a mystery. We had no understanding of this. But he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him. The mystery was revealed to us by God's amazing grace. Remember, this is being written by a murderous terrorist who was made an apostle by the amazing grace of God. He gets it. Do you? What does this great, gracious redemption involve? He spells it out for us. Go to verse 7 again. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So it begins with this forgiveness. That means that the debt that you have piled up morally, the debt that you have piled up in terms of the sin in your life is wiped out by God, forgiven. No longer is on your record. 
God knows you did it. God hasn't forgotten about it because God is incapable of forgetting because he's all-knowing. So this idea that, you know, you hear sometimes people go, hey, you know, uh, your sin is separated from you and God has forgotten your sin. In fact, if you were to go to God and go, hey, Lord, you remember back in 1996 when I stole that car? God would go, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. That's not the God the Bible describes. The God described in the Bible knows everything. So he hasn't forgotten your sin. You know what it means? It means he had a ledger in which he kept your debt. And when Christ died for you, and when you came to that saving relationship with Jesus, he took an eraser and erased the page with your name on it, and he took out his stamp, and in blood-red ink, he stamped, paid in full. Forgiveness. We have forgiveness. Look at verse 11. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. We don't just get forgiveness. That would be mercy, but we get an inheritance. That's grace. He says, not only am I not going to punish you or make you find a way to pay back what you could never pay back, I am going to pay to you the wages that are due to my son who is perfect and holy, you will be a joint heir with Jesus when they read God's will. Jesus' name is there and so is yours right next to it. An inheritance. Look at verse 13. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. There is a seal that takes place. That's a guarantee. In those days when a, when a king would write a letter or maybe, maybe you'd pay off a debt and it would now you'd get the receipt saying it was paid in full, it would be folded, there would be uh, wax melted onto it to seal it. And then there would be a signet stamped into the wax that guaranteed it. And with the signet, it could not be taken away. He says, the Holy Spirit is your seal, your guarantee. And, and this Holy Spirit, look at verse 14, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession of the praise of his glory. Because just in case you're wondering, but Lord, I'm still stuck here. I'm not in heaven. I'm not experiencing all these blessings that you say I get. I'm already an heir. I already have every blessing. He says, don't worry. I'm giving you the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will see to it that your inheritance is delivered. Wow. No wonder we sing about amazing grace, not mediocre grace. Interesting grace. Amazing grace. What unfailing love this is. So what difference does it all make? If you're a Christian, you need to realize that this grace changes everything. You're not the person that you used to be. You're a child of the king. Do you believe that? Are you sure you believe that? <laughs> so let me ask you this. Are you living like it's true? You're a child of the king. And if you're here today, and, and you're hearing this incredible story, but you don't have this incredible relationship with God, and you know it. You know that 
that you're still on the other side of that canyon going, how am I going to jump across? How am I going to get across? I want you to understand, oh, dear one, if you could just understand, His grace is free to you, and His grace is sufficient. He is the bridge across the canyon of your sin. And all that is waiting for you to do is to receive that free gift. And so let me just ask you, what are you waiting for? The Bible says all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. The Bible says that Jesus came, God himself in the flesh, and laid down his life to pay the price for our sin with his blood. You talk about a great God. What could be greater than a God who loves so highly that there is no limit to what he will do for those he loves? And he lays down his life for us. And the Bible says that by faith, we receive that gift, that we put our trust in him. Not just that we say, okay, I think I believe that, but that we actually put our trust in it, that we therefore begin to live in relationship with him. And that as that happens, God stamps paid in full on our ledger. Jesus has paid the price. Why would you keep trying to pay it? yourself. His grace is enough. And so will you accept that grace? Will you walk in that newness of life? And if none of this great story of redemption is new to you, if you've been a believer for some time, been around the church your whole life, I have a question for you as well. Are you taking his grace for granted? Are you living the way you used to live with the little Jesus added? Or are you living a transformed life that His grace empowers you to live? Ephesians is all about believing what's true and living what you believe. Here's what's true. Jesus lived, died, and rose again in order that you might be redeemed and have a transformed life. How are you doing with that?